fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Uh, Mr. Dave Rose Martino is joining <laughs> us. Right. You haven't been here. You haven't been here for a week. I don't know what's going on. You're in karate school. He's uh, teaching yeah. karate. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm back to being a student, learning new stuff. Yeah, but you're like in your fifties. Yeah, you, that's okay. You, you never stop well. learning, right? Yeah. Never stop learning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> you, you, you know, ninja. That's right. I've done that too. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we've got a new guy sitting in. Uh, he'll be uh, joining us. He'll be uh, sitting in as a co-host all the way from the U.K., Mr. Gavin Stone. Thank you for being here, Gav. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to and hoping I can be of some good news to you. Of course. Of course you will. And anybody, uh, if you ever look for Gavin, he's got a YouTube channel and uh, really interesting stuff. He, he gets on there and uh, does all sorts of fun stuff, interviews a lot of people. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, and that'll be up on our website. So anybody wants to follow Gavin, go for it. Thank and, you. uh, you know, he's from the UK, of course. That's what, you know, it's not really an Alabama voice. It's, uh, <laughs> in case we get questions. Because when Julie's on the show, Julie co hosts during paranormal shows and she's from the UK. And we actually get comments say, asking what part of the states is she from. Is it Alabama and all that? It's pretty funny. <laughs> so now, uh, today we'll jump right into it. We've got a guest here, and she's writing historical thriller uh, fiction books. And she's got a new book out, and it's called Broadway Butterfly. And so our guest is Sarah DeVello. Thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here, Alan. So, Sarah, I have to say, Broadway Butterfly. Now, a thriller, but this is historical, 1923 Manhattan, mm -hmm. and it's fictional, but yet true crime? Like, like, explain the premise of this. So Broadway Butterfly is the true story of um, the murder of a scandalous flapper named Dot King who was found dead in her bed, uh, wearing only a lace negligee that scarcely reached her knees, and kicked off an investigation that grabbed headlines nationwide because it was at the vortex of the four things that the New York Daily News deemed that readers were most interested in, which was sex, money, murder, and people with money doing bad things. And the investigation creates ramifications that ripple from the gangster underworld all the way up to the White House. So I spent nine years researching this book, and I pulled as much as I could, including dialogue straight from my research, which was primarily newspapers, although books, biographies, interviews. Um, I amassed over 1,700 pieces of research. But what I learned nine years in is that you simply cannot get everything. Right. And so while I have a lot of, you know, I pulled as much dialogue as I could and as much 
as I possibly could through, you know, throughout the rest of the book, conversations that take place behind closed doors between the police commissioner and the lead detective, between husbands and wives, between suspects, interrogation rooms, simply could not be gotten. And I wanted to put those in. And so we decided to call it fiction so that I could fill those conversations in based on the research that I had done, um, but, but, but could not obtain. Right. I understand that. I did the same thing with the Leopold and Loeb murders mm. um, because I had some things, but I couldn't get it all. And there's, it leaves holes if you're trying to tell a story. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted those holes to be filled in in order to tell that story fully. Right. It reads better that way. Exactly. Um, yeah, it reads more like a, a fiction story in a sense of, you know, follows through and stuff. How, how do you decide how to develop that? Like with, with me, I did have some of the conversations and some of the attitudes of the characters that were in involved in the crime mm -hmm. so what i did was just follow the format where i could to kind of fill in like you know if you have some some other conversations you can kind of understand the words they use how they use it and kind of make it sound like them in a sense did you do the same or did you just create characters and put characters in that were not real no all the characters are real so i did the same thing so i having amassed those, you know, over 1,700 pieces of research, and most of them were newspaper articles, I had read them all, and then I dictated them into a recording device so that I could really cement in my brain the rhythms of their speech and their word choices and how people spoke and also wrote back then so that when it came time to fill that dialogue in, I already had embedded in my brain what they might say and how they might say it. Did you, did you actually dress up like the characters too? Sometimes I do. So for my yeah, book launch <laughs> in New York, I... For my book launch, I've done two launches so far. So I launched in New York on the actual pub day, and then I went to Philadelphia and launched there. And so Jean Kwok, who's the New York Times internationally best-selling author of four books, um, The Leftover Woman coming out in October, she and I went full flapper. So we had, you know, flapper headdresses and dresses and jewelry, and then we had, you know, a 1920s, roaring 20s-themed after party with long cigarettes and playlists, and everything was historically accurate and uh, hosted by my friend Lisa Sharkey. And it just was, it was absolutely so fun and fabulous because the roaring 20s are fun. Yeah. You know, they're glamorous, they're fabulous, they're, you know, just doing things to the hilt with a joie de vivre that is contagious and you know, and fun. And so it was, a, it was fun to immerse myself in that and to share that with readers and with attendees. I'm full flapper right now. Oh, good. <laughs> well, you have your camera off, so oh, I yeah. didn't know. No, because I, I only do that in private, right? I mean, I don't want, it gets leaked, you know, and also I'm in the press all over, you know. We're going to need to see the videotape or, or we're not going to believe that it happened. <laughs> Challenge, gauntlet cast. Alan Warren. Yeah. Whether the challenge will be accepted or not is up to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, talk, talk about the flappers a little bit. Uh, you know, for the listeners who might not know, uh, what were they like, and and how were they perceived in American society in the 1920s? Oh, that's such a good question, Dave. So, what I so in my research, I talked to a lot of professors, 
um, who studied, all of whom I credit in the back of my book, who study this time, who study women, gender roles, socioeconomic roles, um, you know, racial roles. Um, you know, I even talked to a professor at Boston College who studied how police interrogations were portrayed in the media at the time. So I had, you know, um, a lot of information to draw from. So what we need to do is zoom out and look at, at the surrounding, um, the surrounding, um, you know, cultural moment. So we have, you know, World War One has just ended. We don't know there's a World War Two coming, so that's called the Great War. And the economy is booming. The world has just survived its first pandemic, which is the Spanish flu. So after, you know, four years of war, now we have a, a, a pandemic that kills another, you know, I think it was 500,000 Americans. And so the people who have survived have this incredible zest for life because it's like, hey, I'm alive. I made it. You made it, too. <laughs> the economy is booming. We have more money. People have more money and disposable income. We have the invention of cars. So now we can get places that faster and better that we couldn't get with horse and wagon or by train. We have the money to get there. We have electricity. So now we can see where we're going and we can, and especially for women, stay out more safely after dark because we all know ain't nothing good happening late at night in the dark. Um, you know, especially in big cities. So now the cities are illuminated, making it safer for women to go out. Um, jazz music is coming up in the world because of the Great Migration, which is the 7 million Black Americans who, in the wake of the Civil War, war and Jim Crow laws, are, are migrating north um, in, to Chicago, to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York. So we've got this great new music, and the music before that was kind of, kind of drippy. So now we've got this exciting new music, which makes it, you know, exciting to dance to. So people are no longer waltzing, they're dancing to Charleston. And they're, you know, dancing unencumbered and you don't have to be held tightly in a wall. So now you're also freer to move. Now, women are also not wearing corsets, so you can actually breathe. And when you can <laughs> breathe, you can move around and you can do things. And, you know, so we're looking at all of these factors. And this is what is contributing to this particular moment in time. Skirts are rising. Hemlines are no longer down to the floor. So now just like the corsets, you can move more freely. And so women are coming out into the world in a way that they never have before. Up until now, it is you're raised in your father's home, then you go to your husband's home. And that's still primarily the trajectory. So it was Dot King, who is the murder victim. That's not a spoiler. She's found dead in her bed in chapter one. Um, she's living alone. And that is almost unheard of. Women primarily still did go the, you know, the path of father's house to husband's house. But the few women who did go out and live somewhere, you know, on their own in between there always had a female roommate. Women did not travel alone. Women did not live alone. Women didn't drive alone. Dot King is doing all of those things. She has not just one car, but two cars, and she drives them herself. So she's a woman who's literally living under, under her own steam. And she's not living by society's rules. So she is making her own money. She's living by herself. She's making a lot of money. Three weeks before she's married, before she's murdered, she deposits um, over $10,000 in cash at one of her three banks. And that would be about $170,000 in cash um, in 2023 terms. So she has inordinate sums of money, almost unimaginable wealth, for the daughter of two Irish immigrants. Her father's a night watchman at Wanamaker's. He died a few years before this. Her mother's a laundress 
who eventually works her way up to having her own laundry. So she's not coming from any sort of privilege. And she is living life on her own terms. So that's a little bit about her. And she's around women who are also, you know, breaking the mold and doing their own thing. And until 1924, it was illegal for women to smoke in public. You could not, if you smoked a cigarette on the sidewalk, you could be arrested. I mean, those are the kind of restrictions that were that women lived under at this time. Women were not allowed to cut their hair. And then all of a sudden in the 1920s, women said, you know, to heck with this. And they started bobbing their hair. And this was considered, you know, so scandalous, a woman with short hair. And here today, in, you know, in 2023, you might think, oh, my gosh, that's so old fashioned. And yet let's look a little deeper. If you see a woman with a shaved head or blue hair or purple hair or green hair or pink hair, you might catch yourself making some assumptions about her, you know, that she lives a certain kind of lifestyle or listens to a certain kind of music or makes certain kind of choices in her life. And so those attitudes that we think are so old fashioned still permeate our society today. And we're still you know, still living under, you know, regulations, trying to regulate women's bodies today. And when we look back a hundred years ago, we see where that has come from. Right, right. You know, personally, I like to have the corset on as I'm getting older because things tend to hang loose now. So it's interesting um, you should say that, Alan, because I, <laughs> because I'm actually, you know, the algorithm on social media cues into what you're searching for. So because I'm talking about all of these things, ads for corsets have started popping up for me. And I was <laughs> so shocked to see that they're really trending, that women are wearing them um, decoratively and also, you know, just as a fashion statement. And I kind of was shocked to see it because they're really harmful to your organs. And yet women now in 2023 are choosing to, you know, lace themselves in. So it's a very interesting moment. Well, I know you did a hell of a lot of extensive research with this and looked into it to keep the con continuity as accurate as you could. Mm. But was there anything that got away factually or, or anything that you didn't discover that you really wish you'd have been able to have found out for, for, for this book? That is such a good question. So I, at one point, got so stuck because, you know, nine years ago when I started, I thought I was, you know, going to solve this because it remains one of the most notorious unsolved crimes of, of the century. And so I thought, you know, Detective DeVello reporting for duty, stand back, everyone. I've got this, you know, in spite of the fact that I'm not a police detective and uh, I had never written a mystery before. Like, relax, everybody. I'll take care of it. Um, and... <laughs> The way that only the very, you know, naive can can be so foolish. And a couple of years in, I found myself super stuck because, you know, have not yet gotten a shovel and a flashlight and ex dug up the body and exhumed her myself. Stay tuned, that may still happen. I was so stuck that I actually ended up hiring a psychic who works with law enforcement to solve cold cases. And I had never hired a psychic before, like, and no judgment, but that just isn't part of my usual weekly routine. It's not like, oh, it's Psychic Tuesday, off I go, you know? <laughs> um, but I was that determined that I would leave no stone unturned. And that ended up being incredibly helpful, actually. One thing that I was never able to find is that one of the suspects is being protected by police. And even down to the fact where they're protecting his true identity, they're using a pseudonym for him that he used for himself. Um, and the police go along with this, which is, you know, really shocking. And, and part of what spurred this, you know, this case to seize the headlines for so long is the, the police partiality that was given to this one suspect. And... 
he was then revealed by a, a newspaper who tracked him down and revealed him. And I've never been able to find that issue of that newspaper. And I think it was because they released it as a special edition. So I currently have a really good friend at the Library of Congress who is determined that she will find, procure the actual issue. And I can't wait to hold that in my hands. When you go through the papers, I always found that, you know, going through stuff in the 20s and the papers, pretty disorganized. You know, the way they print it in the papers, you know what I mean? They start writing an article, and then it'll be on the next page and the next page. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I don't know if you noticed that. I, I did notice, you know, they would spill to several pages, you know, especially when they found that there was enough juice in that article to to warrant the page space. I also noticed it was interesting because at first I just was reading the articles um, themselves. I wasn't looking at the rest of the newspaper page because when I first started this, the New York Daily News, where my lead reporter and my lead character, Julia Hartman, is, a re is the crime reporter at the New York Daily News, and she's just earned her byline. And back then, people didn't have bylines. Only the top tier of newspaper reporters earned bylines, and that was, that was a huge honor. So it made it even harder to find her articles because you know, up until two weeks before the case, she didn't have a byline. And she literally had to, you know, scan the whole page, scan the headlines to find, you know, the article that you're looking for. And I just, so I was so focused on that task and on, you know, then dictating the article and, 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 and taking notes and embedding all of that in my memory and, and, you know, and trying to figure out how it would fit into the narrative arc. But when I went to talk to the professor Christopher Wilson at Boston College about how um, police interrogation methods were portrayed by newspapers in the 1920s, which is such a niche um, area of study, but happened to be perfect for me. He said, you're not just reading the articles, are you? And I said, sort of embarrassedly, yes, I am. And he said, no, 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 no. You got to look at the ads. You got to look at the ads. That's what gives you an idea of what life is like and what people care about. And I was so fascinated because even now we all sort of scan out the ads. We filter those out. Even if you're watching TV, you don't, you're not like, oh, a commercial, unless it's, you know, unless it's the, the Super Bowl. You're not like, shh, 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 everyone, quiet, quiet. It's the commercial. You know, that's when you go get your snack, your popcorn, your drink. Um, but he was like, no, that's what you got to focus in on. And once I, so I went back to the beginning and looked at all of the ads in all, around all of the articles. And he, and Professor Wilson was so right because that is really what, gave me that texture for what life was like. So what was interesting was Wrigley's was making bubble gum, uh, chewing gum. Maybelline was making makeup. You know, maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybelline was still making mascara. Um, but so many companies went out of business. And what people cared about, you know, was, you know, how to grow thicker, glossier hair, slow digestion, take this, you know, take this, uh, you know, big, fig um, paste that'll help, you know, get your digestion moving. Not able to sleep, here's something for sleeplessness and, and insomnia. Feeling down in the doldrums, take this. And it's so interesting because <laughs> 100 years later, we're still worried about those things, right? Everybody wants thicker, glossier hair. Everybody wants good digestion. Everyone wants good sleep. And yet, we no longer prescribe mercury taking, taken, er you know, orally for what ails you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I put it on my head and I still own yeah. my hair. Yeah, it just is so interesting to see, you know, what has changed and what stays the same. 
How do you organize all of this research and your continuity? Do you have any tools or systems or procedures? So I download all of all of the articles that I could find digitized, I downloaded, then I dictated them, and then I saved the transcription so that I could search for terms or people's names or dates or when black when blackmail started to be discussed. Then for the articles that were only available on microfilm, which I had to get in, you know, in the bowels of the New York Public Library or the Boston Public Library on microfilm, you know, pulling out the drawer, going through the, it looks like little rolls of scotch tape in little boxes. You pull it out, you feed it in the microfilm machine, and then you go through page by page. And because there's no search, there's no search function on microfilm. You are going through every single page of that newspaper and then printing out the articles or the ads that I was interested in, then dictating those and saving the transcriptions. So that is how I saved them, both the the hard copies, the PDFs, and the my my vocal transcriptions, so that the, so that I could have those all organized. Then I also had folders uh, on my desk and around, and then I also created calendars on those giant post-it notes. So the wall, I quickly ran out of wall space in my office because my office is tiny. And my very patient, very, very loving husband allowed me to then take over the living room. <laughs> so <laughs> it's looking very much like A Beautiful Mind, that Russell Crowe movie. Um, it's really looking beautiful mindy in our entire apartment because I have giant post-it notes everywhere with calendars of what happened on each day, the highlights of each day, then calendars of what was portrayed in the news, then calendars by each character, because I have four characters, then also murder boards, you know, connecting each each clue, each character, each person, and having, I'm a really visual person, so it's helpful to, to me to have it up on the walls. And then I also had my photo archives. So I was able to get research passes to rare books collections at the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, and the J.P. Morgan Library and Museum, as well as several presidential libraries. And they had boxes and boxes and boxes of archives. So I have all of that as well, uh, which some of which I've pinned up on the wall and some of which I just have in, you know, in stacks organized by varying levels of OCD on my desk. <laughs> wow. Who was Dot King? Like, let's talk about her. And, and how did she get so much money? Like, this, that's a lot of money. That's just, that's not common. So what was it and what gave her such you know, connections with people. Why was she so popular? And what was her persona in the public? Did they know who she was? And why did they know who she was? Like, let's let's talk, talk about that. And also, when you're doing a character like that, and she's kind of the focus of this whole book, do you actually hear her voice when you're going through it all? Like, do you, does that person become real? These people have all become very real to me because I was able to eventually find photos of all of them. Dot was very easy to find photos of because she was a professional model, also the murder victim. So every day there were, you know, pictures in every newspaper because she was the center of the case. She was the body, you know, the victim. Um, but also she was very visually appealing. So that only made her, them run more pictures of her because she was so eye-catching. So Doc King was known as the most beautiful woman in Manhattan. Um, she was, a, you know, a professional model. She was absolutely stunningly gorgeous. And she had this very glamorous life, which made her even more appealing as a murder victim to cover in the press 
because she was so different than most women again and she was scandalous living alone having two cars having all this money having you know fur coats that were you know a thousand dollars each which would now be you know seventeen thousand dollars can you imagine having a coat that would be you know seventeen thousand dollars i mean that's that's a car you know she had and just dripping with jewels that her many admirers because Again, some things don't change. Men like pretty girls um, would 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 you know would would throw at her. You know, here's here. Let me give you these gifts. Let me give you these you know these gems and diamonds and pearls and emeralds and just you know just shower her with with expensive gifts. So that was who she was. She was using what she had at a time when opportunities and options were very limited for women to survive. So. You know, she grew up in this Irish immigrant house. Her, again, her parents were immigrated from Ireland, didn't have much of anything, moved around apartments a lot of times. You know, she wasn't growing up in, you know, one home. She wasn't, they didn't own, they rented. And so they moved around a lot, creating sort of, you know, an instability for the family. And she got married when she was 17 years old on her 17th birthday. And when I think about how to tell the entirety of a human's life you know obviously i could write an entire book just about her but i had to choose to hone in on a few moments that it's like oh that's really the heart of who that person is that's a very telling moment and i just felt like getting married on your 17th birthday it, it says so much right because first of all 17 is just way way too young to get married but you can picture a very hopeful immature 16 year old girl saying wouldn't it be romantic if i got married on my 17th birthday and just thinking that's so dreamy you know so she marries this much older guy and it doesn't work out to no one's surprise or at least not to mine so she moves back home her dad has died and because this is such a patriarchal society in 1923 her her brother takes over as quote head of the house so even though her mother owns the laundry at this point, her mother's making her own money, owning her own business, she still has to defer to her son to be the head of the house. Well, her brother, who's younger than her, by the way, doesn't like how she's living. He doesn't like that she's bobbed her hair. He doesn't like that she's wearing shorter skirts. And I'm not talking mini skirts here. I'm talking to the knee, right? But he's not happy because they're not down to the floor. He doesn't like that she dyes her hair blonde. He thinks, you know, she's looking trampy, like a tramp. And so basically they have a fight and he, he hits her and he throws her out of the house. And so she is now on the streets in New York and has to figure out how to make a living and how to survive and how to procure housing and income for herself. So she, you know, being very beautiful, starts to become a model. And that's how she is living. And then because, again, men like pretty girls, she starts to attract admirers and she becomes a sugar baby, a kept woman. So she has a sugar daddy and the term sugar daddy and sugar baby are only in our cultural vernacular today because of this case, because of Dot King and because of her, of her, her sugar daddy. So if you've ever used that term, read that term, heard that term, now you know it is only because of this woman, this case. Um, and so he is keeping her, which means he's paying her rent for her apartment. He's paying the salary for her maid. He's paying, he's giving her an allowance every month, you know, to pay her bills, the electricity, the water, you know, to 
buy clothes with or, or you know, to, to everything, all those bills that we all have, right? And he's giving her about $1,000 a month, which would be, again, $17,000. You can live quite comfortably on that, right? But yet, Todd King starts to make, we know from her last bank deposit, even more money than that, right? She's, she deposits $10,000, which is 10x what he's giving her, which would be, you know, $170,000 today. And that is where the story gets really interesting, because where is she getting that money? And how was she getting that money? And that is where the case gets super juicy. So uh, as you've got to know Duck King and, you, and you've worked through doing your research, are there any shared propensities or similarities with yourself? I know that you have many hidden talents also, for example, Tigavarish Poruski. Yeah, I do speak Russian. Thank you for noticing, Gavin. So my college roommate was a Russian immigrant um, as part of that large Russian immigrant population in the late 1990s in the fall of the Soviet Union, who fled the then crumbling Soviet Union, which then became Russia, of course. Um, and I lived with her and her family just kind of adopted me and, you know, what cooked for me and very warmly welcomed me into their family. And so um, I learned through the immersion method how to speak Russian. And at one time I could all, I could pass for Russian, but now I'm rusty and my accent is terrible. So, but, you know, that's, it will be a good cover. For, if this whole writing thing doesn't work out, I could always go into the, you know, work as a spy. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe I already. Um, <laughs> so what I learned is, I, at first, I thought to myself, I, I can't identify with this woman, right? She trades on her looks, and I want to be taken seriously as a writer, right? I want to trade on my intellect. You know, she's involved with some bad guys. She's, in, she's running with a dangerous crowd of people, a dangerous crowd of dangerous men. And that ultimately caught up with her. Not that anyone ever deserves to be treated violently, and certainly no one deserves to to be murdered or to have that to have one's life cut short. One way to you know to lessen your odds of doing that is to not hang around with some really dangerous guys. So I thought I can't relate to this person at all until I interviewed Professor Martha Sexton, who's a professor emeritus at Amherst College in Western Massachusetts, and she studies women, she, she worked in women and gender studies, and she studied the interactions between socioeconomic and racial um, racial divisions of women at the turn of the century, which was so helpful to me. I kept saying, I don't understand why this woman who's so brave and so bold and living on her own terms and making her own money was associating with these bad guys and making these bad choices. And, you know, her, she has multiple, she kept multiple lovers, and one of them was a really violent Broadway gigolo who um, was physically abusing her. And I kept saying, but why? Why would she do this? Why would she do this? And, and Professor Sexton you know, said, well, we got to look at, again, the, the, the larger, you know, cultural moment. At that time, at that particular point, she was probably raised in a home with you know, with with physical abuse, her, her her there may have been alcohol alcoholism in that in the home. You know, turn of the century Irish American family, and it may have been you know her father may she may have seen that modeled by her parents. Her brother you know hit her, that's why she left. I thought, and I all of a sudden I understood. Oh, you know, you get you what you see, you know, is what becomes normal to you. And I thought, you know, I grew up in a family that didn't have much. You know, I grew up in a very, very modest family. I was the first in my family to go to college, and I worked my way up 
to wherever I am today. All of a sudden, I thought to myself, that's something I can identify with her. She came from nothing, and she pulled herself up by her bootstraps to survive and to, you know, make a path for herself. And I have done that as well. And I thought, and that was when I was able to connect with her and think, I understand you now. Going through this process, you know, it took you what, nine years, you were saying something, right? Mm-hmm. When you look back at this and you look back at the whole, everything that was involved in this, how do you think this has changed you as a writer and even as a person? Ooh, that's such a good question. What I've learned about myself is that I am doggedly determined, which I kind of knew, but I didn't know I that that could sustain me for nine tedious years of research. So that definitely, you know, I thought to myself, wow, I can, I can actually do this. I can stay with the project as long as it needs, even through, I mean, almost a decade of my life working on something almost every single day. I wouldn't have thought... You know, if you if someone says to me, do you want to sign on to work on something for the next 10 years of your life and you will have absolutely nothing to show for it until you get to that end of the decade? I would think, whew, that's that's a lot on this side of that. I can say, oh, wow, I did it. So I think that is sort of what I've taken the most from it. And as a writer, I think what I've realized is I've learned a lot about the craft of writing, you know, thinking about character, thinking about dialogue having confidence in myself as a writer, you know, honing those words and the story and that narrative arc and crispening it and sharpening it and polishing it for almost a decade. I feel like I'm a stronger writer now. And hopefully the next one won't take me a decade. (laughs) So stay tuned. (laughs) No, it won't, you know, because I I find what happens is you've learned a lot in the process because like now, as I'm doing books, I'm I'm just going through the papers. I go through them every single day in the year that I'm covering or the case, and then I go through different cities because not only do you look at the ads, but you look at what people are writing about, you know, politically and mm. problems and who's killing who and what and mm. how they and how they print about, let's say, people like like you know you notice a lot of things about how they speak of women, how they speak of races how they speak of different things in the 1920s and about their thoughts on war looming and stuff like that when they're talking. It's really interesting. So, uh, yeah, So, but you know this now, so you'll be much faster and better. You know where to go and how to set it up, how to get your your room set up at, at, at home there and kick your husband out and all that stuff. And Exactly. So you, you kind of already got that. So it'll be much faster, right? you know, I think. It, it, I find it that way. Okay, that's encouraging for me because you're. Tw- I know you're 25 books in, Alan. So yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is heartening. Well, no, because and the other thing I noticed too now is because I've got five cases going at a time. Oh my God! You can't have one. One doesn't work. You've got to have several because sometimes it takes a while to get information mm-hmm. for certain cases. Because sometimes I also send, I want to get the police record as well. Sometimes if you know who the officer detective was that's running a case, you you can get his notes or get his police records mm-hmm. and find out even more detail. And sometimes that's a nice perspective because you go from the detective's point of view on what they thought, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a really it's real fascinating. Uh, you can get so involved in it. Get four or five cases going, girl. You get there. 
<laughs> oh my god, I, I, my brain, my brain hurts thinking of that. My brain actually, I'm I'm curled in the fetal position, rocking. <laughs> but I, I looked at it this way: if I'm I'm 61 now, I've got to do it. You know, I got to get all this done before I'm in the old age home. You know, it's not far. So, you know, get on it. You know, <laughs> the thing is, there's no expiration date on being a writer. You could be, you know, writing well into your well into your 100. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Gavin just turned ninety. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> last November. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he looks good for that age, doesn't he? Looks pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. 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 Men- mental age of only twelve, though. Yeah. Well, you must be using that nineteen twenties, you know, mercury skin cure that is so recommended for youthful skin. That's the one, yeah. Um, oil of um, oil, oil of the Middle East, I think it was called. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. It tastes really good in coffee. Yeah, exactly. Put some right in there. Yeah, I love the double <laughs> shot of mercury, please. Thank you. Exactly. Uh, actually, it's worth it. So what are you going to do next then? Now you, you've got this thing, and of course you're promoting and you're working on, on the book and the marketing and all that stuff and let people know it's there. Have you got another case going already now, or you've got one in mind? I have one in mind, but I also feel like there's just such a such an incredible, you know, we live in such a culture of hurry. You know, everything from Internet to food is always faster, 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 better, better, better. And, you know, not – in in that culture of hurry, I am choosing to slow down and to, you know, be in this moment and really celebrate and support the launch of this book before I start to dive into the next one. Because I think that in the process of hurry up, we lose the moment and the meaningfulness of what we have created so far. So I'm trying to just stay present in this moment before and really support this book before I dive into the next one. Because, you know, we see that, you see that everywhere. Someone gets married, when are you going to have kids? When you have one kid, when are you going to have a second kid? You know, it's always like, why are we always looking at the next thing? Why don't we just enjoy what we have? Oh, very true. No, it's a, it's a really good thought and, and I'm glad you can do it. I wish I could. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't happen for me, but that's good. I'm glad. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers that are about to start out? That's such a good question, Gavin. So I um, I run a Authors Helping Authors uh, volunteer initiative, which I founded during the pandemic to help my fellow writers get the word out about their books, which is called Mystery and Thriller Mavens. And I stream interviews every Monday for hashtag Mystery Monday, because Mondays can be murder. Um, and I stream them in partnership with a woman-owned independent bookstore and one of a handful of dedicated mystery and thriller bookstores in the country, which is Murder by the Book in Houston, Texas. And in the past three plus years, I've done about between 350 and 400 interviews. I stopped counting. And in that time, I have feel like I have really taken the time to talk about craft and process and what works and why it works and what doesn't work and why doesn't it work. And I feel like I've almost used this time to get, you know, an, a, an unofficial MFA or to, 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 to get some sort of, you know, deeper understanding of, the, of writing and craft. And so what I want to say to people who are, um, to, who, are, who are thinking about writing a book is that, first of all, if you hear the call to write a book, you must, because everyone is not called to do that. And if you are, you must listen and you must act. So start writing. And number two, really think about, about the craft. Dedicate yourself to the craft and the process. 
and think deeply about what books you love and why you love them. What characters resonate for you and why? What don't? What you just, you know, you close the book after five or 10 or 20 pages and think, eh, not interested. Why aren't you interested? What has the author failed to do to keep your interest, to hook you? And what works for dialogue? What doesn't work? What feels stilted and forced and awkward and shallow and unreal? And what feels real and authentic and meaningful and powerful? When I read a good sentence, I'll stop and reread it three times and really soak it into my bones and my brain and marvel at the craft of a beautifully wrought sentence. Um, I also read things four ways, my, my own work four ways, because you have to remember that people are reading differently now. So I read it on the screen, on my computer screen, obviously, because that's how I'm writing it. I print it out and I read it on paper because I am telling you, you will read it differently. Something that you have spent every day of your life on, looking at it on screen and you think you could read it forwards and backwards inside out seven different ways till Sunday. When you print it on paper and read it that way, it, you will see something you've never seen before. If you don't, put it in another font, put it in another size, read it that way. Then, because people are primarily reading on Kindles these days, you should make it a PDF, email it to yourself, and read it on a Kindle. And that is somehow different than reading it on your computer screen. And you have to read it as those readers will read it. And then number four, people are listening to audiobooks a lot. So you need to record yourself reading it and then listen back, and you will hear it differently that way. And when you read it, as all of your readers are going to read and listen to it, you will hear things differently. Also, I think that's the best way to work on dialogue. A lot of times I'll read people's books and the dialogue is just so stilted. It's so, no human speaks like that. And I know that they didn't read it out loud. And yet dialogue is something that someone has spoken, allegedly. So speak it and then record it and listen to it and ask yourself, is that how a human talks? And if it isn't, fix it. I like that. There you go. Now, are you, are you, are you thinking about your reader when you're writing a book? I'm thinking about my reader because they are going to be coming into this world with me. But I'm mostly thinking about the characters because, you know, this is true crime and these people are real. Doc King is a real human being. John D., you know, Inspector John D. Coughlin, head of the NYPD Detectives Unit, is a real human being. Francis Stotesbury is a real human being. Doc King, you know, is a real human being. Julia Hartman is real. And I owe it to these real human beings to write them in, in their entirety, in their wholehearted realness and the complexity that is all of us. And I think to myself, you know, it's very vulnerable to have someone write your story. And if someone, you know, was going to write my story, I'd be like, hey, don't rush. Don't rush. Just make sure you don't hone in on one moment, my best moment or my worst moment, and think that's the entirety of who I am. You know, really take the time to, to get in to this, into this world and try to understand this complex, complicated, beautiful, hard human, you know? And that is because they are real and because I, I feel so connected to them and I feel that that is what is owed to them because that's how I would want someone to take to take care of my story in my hands I hold their story and I felt the incredible pressure to get it right and also the the honor the burden and the honor of telling their story and that's 
my primary focus. Well, don't worry. I'll make sure that I only put the bad stuff in when I write your story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please, exactly. Get me when I was sleep-deprived, hadn't had my morning coffee, and screaming at my husband. That's the moment I went yeah. to watch it. So listen, um, social media, are you all around? Uh, where, where do people find you on the land of the Internet? I am everywhere. So first of all, I have a large behind-the-scenes um, treasure trove of my research on my website, which is very mysterious. It's saradevello.com, and that is slash behind the scenes. You, you can see you can see these people. You can see their pictures. You can see where they lived, where they worked, what they did. Um, you can see me going to all these research sites. So check out my website, saradevello.com, and then if you're interested in my interviews, it's mysteryandthrillermavens.com, and then I am on all social media. Um, Instagram is my favorite. And it's all my name, so Sarah Tavello on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Threads, TikTok. I do it all. Wow, you do TikTok. Do you get on there and dance and all that? And you have a little your puppy dog on there. I do have my puppy dog. Um, mostly, I just mostly I strut, but uh, you know I do love to dance. So stay tuned. I'm a, I I love to dance. It's such a joyful experience. So I may start dancing. Well, there you go. You see, I've just got my dog on mine. But if you watch Dave, he does a lot of strutting. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. A fellow strutter. Accident. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big strutter. Yeah, that's right. He's, he's karate strutter and all that. How do you pronounce your dog's name? Is it Pelu? It's Pelu, yes. So she is a rescue mutt from Texas, and she was found under a shed with her mom and her litter mates and fostered by a Spanish-speaking family who named her Pelura, um, which Pelu, Pelu loosely means hair in Spanish, and she is a hairy one. Uh, she's a shaggy, scruffy little street mutt, and her sisters, Petalo, which is like the petal of a flower, and Capullo, which is the center of the flower, her two sisters were adopted by my friend Rebecca's um, parents. And then uh, Rebecca went home to Texas to see her family for Christmas. And she sent me a picture and said, oh, my gosh, look at my mom's new puppies. And I said, oh, my God, I want one. And she said, well, there's one left to be adopted, but nobody wants her because she's the ugly one. And I knew then I had to have her because I'm one of three sisters, and it's my worst nightmare to be the ugly one. <laughs> um, I had to have Pelu, my little, and they called her Peludita, which means the little hairy one. And so my husband and I adopted Peludita um, 12 and a half blissful years ago. She's turning 13 this fall. She's the love of our life. And she is the little hairy one. So we do, I, I'm very active in the dog rescue community, the animal rescue community. So I always, um, I always adopt. Don't I advocate for adopt? Don't shop. That's a, that's amazing too. I've been doing that over twenty years. I get the old rescues from the pen, oh. like they're five and older, oh. and um, yeah. So everything actually, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Chihuahuas and Shelfies. Oh. I've got a Jack Russell now who's eighteen. Oh. Uh, my Chihuahua just passed, and she was oh. twenty. Oh my god! I'm so, so sorry. No, I mean. I'm I'm happy to have had her, and you know what I mean. It's a good, it's such a good thing to do. Mm. And um, I mean, we have a little bit of property. Why not? You know. Oh, that's um, so wonderful! Thank you. You know, because they, they nobody adopts the old ones. Everybody wants the puppy. Oh, you know. Oh God, I know. Oh my God. You know, the old ones are the best ones. They um, really are. Oh my God. Yeah. And thank you. Yeah. And nobody wants them, and they just sit there in these shelters, and it's heartbreaking. It, it makes yeah, it makes no sense. I I love them. The, the only hard thing about when you get the old ones are, 
um, they do pass much yeah. quicker, of course, because mm-hmm. they're older. So you don't have them that's around as time. long. Yeah. So it just seems like they come and they go, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the harder part. But yeah. it's it's just, uh, you know, I'll keep doing it until I can't. Until and then I see what I'm doing is I'm really hoping someone does that for me because I'm getting oh. old. <laughs> yes. No, it's so wonderful because – the older ones, I would, I just would never adopt a puppy. The puppy energy is too much for me. And the old ones just want to be with you. Like, Pelu just sits with me all day while I write. She snuggles her little, yeah. her warm little scruffy body against me. She's a quarter chihuahua. We did her DNA. And she is just oh, yeah. so happy to be with us and to go for walks and, you know, snuggle. No, it's, and it's, yeah, there's it's great. nothing great. like the love of a dog. Nothing. No, nothing. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank and, you, guys. Thank you, Adam. And a, Yeah, and of course the book, uh, Broadway Butterfly, and our guest is the author of that book, mm. and, uh, you know, our guest. So, Sarah <laughs> DeVello, thank you very much. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Gavin. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you guys. Thanks, Sarah. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is here production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.